If there's one thing that most travelers have in common, regardless of their final destination, it's the experience of flying in coach. Falling seatbacks, tighter spaces, more fees, fewer goodies. These are all part of the once glamorous experience of crossing an ocean or a continent by air. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. We're getting an insider's guide to flying today on Travel with Rick Steves. James Wysong is a career flight attendant for a major airline, and he's put together some of his most memorable experiences and most valuable lessons with a generous serving of good humor in his guide to making air travel a better experience for everybody. And you can complain about the legroom, but imagine traveling around the world without using an airplane. We'll hear how two comedy writers from Los Angeles made a bet to see which one of them could circle the globe first without ever leaving the ground. We're packing a sense of humor with us today as we travel both high in the sky and slow on the ground on Travel with Rick Steves. You can imagine how 20 years as a flight attendant provides you with plenty of stories and good advice to help passengers make the most of their time in coach. I'm Rick Steves, and today on Travel with Rick Steves, James Wysong is our guest with some flight attendant wisdom on enjoying your time in the air. Armed with a little useful information and realistic expectations, even the longest flight can be a pleasure. Later in the hour, we'll hear from two travelers who decided they'd race each other around the world using everything except an airplane to do it. We'll hear what these two comedy writers experienced in what they call their ridiculous race. We're at 877-333-RICK or by email it's radio at ricksteves.com as we press the flight attendant button for James Wysong on Travel with Rick Steves. Any of us who fly a lot are fascinated, I think, by the world of flight attendants and how they keep everybody safe and happy high in the sky. How do they deal with these people? How do they organize everything? What are their pet peeves? What about security? What about the latest frustrations and so on? Well, we're talking today with a man who's uh, spent 20 years as a flight attendant and has written a book called Flying High to explain the insider's take on air travel. James Wysong, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I remember when I first started flying, it was a it was a ritual to get onto an airplane and everything, and, and today things are quite casual. When you look back on 20 or 30 years of air travel, what are you nostalgic about, and, and what are the major changes that, that are apparent to you? Well, the first airline I worked for was Pan Am. That was, that was phenomenal. You had the ice molds, the caviar, the Dom Perignon in first class, and, and actually flying was, was a treat and experience. But things have changed, obviously, now with charging for everything and possible charges for lavatories, you have it. I mean, it's, it's, it's gone downhill, but it's changed, and everything must change. Well, probably the good side of that is the democratization of air travel. In the old days, it was wealthy people who traveled that way, and today people go to a, a football game with the family by air. Is that, is that a fair uh, upside of how things have gotten more casual? Sure. Also, people are flying for comfort as well, where you know everybody used to fly in three-piece suits, and now they're kind of a little bit more casual as well. But each year, you probably see one little bit of the elegance of the old days being peeled away in the name of budget savings. Oh, yeah. And I'm the front line in the plane. So, you know, when you don't have a blanket or pillow, it's my fault. Here's your chance to talk to a bunch of coach travelers. How, how are coach travelers unreasonable? And, and how can they better understand your situation and be more realistic about how everybody can fly together comfortably and, and reasonably? What, what are your pet peeves and what do you want to communicate? Well, realize that there are a lot of people now flying an economy that aren't used to flying economy. You know, the people that always flew economy, they've pretty much got it set. But some of these people that are coming from business class don't really know 
how to fly economy. And there's there's a whole world out there of different cultures, and you've got every seat basically full these days. So you have to be aware that there are other people in this world, and that's very important. There is actually a culture shock of business travelers whose businesses now no longer pay the first class or business class, and they have to be sitting back there with all the, the crying babies and the backpackers and the soccer teams. Exactly. And a lot of oh. times, the, a funny remark is, you're kidding, right? <laughs> you're, uh, no, I'm not kidding. <laughs> you're kidding, right? I can just hear that. So you can probably tell who is a formerly first-class traveler. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. They stand out like a deer in the headlights. That's interesting. As a matter of principle, I only fly coach. To me, the classism is so interesting, you know. Our first-class travelers, da-da-da-da-da and everybody else, da-da-da-da-da. And it's just uh, it's a fascinating world, and it's kind of fun to think of those first-class guys back in coach with the rest of us well, cattle. that's why I'm still flying. It's just because it is a fascinating world, and it's a great show, and I've got a front-row seat, and I prefer working in the back because there are so many interesting characters that it just keeps my, my life kind of uh, variety-fold. Well, now, you can actually psychoanalyze passengers, I would imagine. I, I would think that on some routes, you'll have a different kind of clientele than other routes. Is there anything to exactly. that? Tell me more about that. Well, I mean, you fly to South America, you can pretty much sure that everybody's having five or six sugars with their coffee. You fly in London, make extra tea, the, the general things like that. But you get people that are not accustomed to flying, and then that's when things get interesting. People that, you know, aren't used to taking that flight. They're the real appreciative passengers. Okay, so the business travelers, they're the ones that are going to be more demanding and yeah, high, high maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you've got a flight going down to Baja, California, it's probably going to be a little noisier and a little more work for you than a business flight going to Chicago where everybody's just got their laptop up and looking at their charts. Right, especially going to Florida or the Caribbean during spring break. You know, certain things I try to avoid and certain things I try to go to, uh, like uh, going to Germany during Oktoberfest. That's one of my personal favorites, so... I kind of try to bid around that. So you like that, but that's going to be like going to a, a football championship or something. Everybody's going to be in a great mood and very spirited. Exactly. And you know what? Flight attendants like having a fun time, too. And as long as it's under control, I actually prefer a, a, an eventful flight rather than a, <laughs> a boring flight. Okay. Speaking of eventful flights, I was reading in your book that there's fights among passengers, and 70% of all the fights are over the issue of reclining seats. Yes, it's a big, big issue. That and the armrest fight. Who belongs to the armrest? Who is this mine? Is this yours? The seats in the back are getting smaller and smaller, and uh, people are getting bigger. Well, that's not you know working a lot for many passengers. And uh, you you might be fine until you take off, but right when they recline into your lap, that's when things kind of you know, that's interesting. Escalate. People are getting fatter. Airlines are getting uh, in tougher economic times because I've noticed all those seats are on a sliding chute, and you can loosen the screws and slide the seats back to fit an extra row of seats in if you want to, right? Yeah, yeah. And they're not doing that. They're actually, uh, they, they need more passengers. So, right. you know, the CEO's got to get their money. Of course. And, <laughs> and when people pay the cheapest ticket, they're going to get the cheapest flight, which is going to be the, the least legroom. Just It's kind of common exactly. sense. I understand you've actually got handcuffs on the plane and, and you are authorized to use them if necessary? We do. We do. I actually had to use them one time. A, a man took a swing at me and then the pilot came out. This was right before 9-11. I cut him off and I actually am specializing in cutting people off of alcohol. I don't think mm -hmm. alcohol and flying or too much alcohol and flying is, is, right. is a good mix. So he took a swing at me and uh, the pilot came out and he took a swing at the pilot and we just kind of whipped him around and put handcuffs on him and, and left him in a seat the rest of the flight. Oh, my goodness. I'm lucky I've never seen that on a plane. I'm talking with uh, James Weisong, who writes a book called Flying High, sharing 20 years of experience as a flight attendant 
fascinating book. I just really enjoyed, James, going through this book. Esther has uh, emailed us here from Maryland, and she writes, Sitting in coach on a long flight is painful enough, but when the person in front of me reclines his seat all the way back, it becomes impossible to read or get out of my seat. Any advice on dealing with this situation? When I politely asked the person to move his seat up, his response was to just recline your seat also, but uh, I didn't want to recline my seat because it would crowd the person behind me. Uh, that's that's a common concern that Esther has. What, what do you advise? How do people communicate better? Well, first of all, uh, do not start off by kicking the seat in front of you, letting him know that you're uncomfortable. That just is a way of just getting his dander up and he won't be any any help to you. You can always ask a flight attendant if there's another seat. There's always one or two extra seats that you can you can move or you can actually negotiate. Say, do you mind if you just a little bit. You do it halfway <laughs> instead of the whole way. That's probably reasonable. Also, you mentioned in your book something about simple posture in your own seat will give you a little extra leg room. Exactly. If, if you slouch in your seat, your knees are going to hit the seat back pocket in front of you. So if you kind of sit up in your seat, you're more apt to have a little extra leg room. Also, a good little piece of advice is take all the magazines out of the seat back pocket in front of you. That'll give you an extra inch and inch and a half. <laughs> I just read somewhere where somebody says, does anybody even use those magazines and stuff? There's a lot of junk in those seats that you guys are flying around. It's expensive to carry all that paper around. Is there any reconsidering of those? They're just piles of ads for your you know, duty-free shopping and stuff, isn't it? Exactly. Well, I think the airlines get paid to have them in the seat back pocket, so that, yeah. I guess it's going to stay. Well, what is it? American Airlines doesn't even paint its airplanes because that saves lots of weight just in flying around the paint, right? Exactly. You can look at clever ways to fly less stuff, and it'll be less expensive for the airlines, and and travelers will pay less also. Yeah, they're stripping a lot of things out of the plane. Some airlines are taking the movies off the plane to alleviate uh, weight as well, which I don't think is a good idea because that gives a lot of people a lot of time to think about how horrible their airline is. So I think keep them busy. You know, my godsend lately are my noise reduction earphones. I'll I'll sit and coach with my noise reduction earphones. I'd prefer that to business class without the earphones. It's just I'm in my own little world when I've got the silence of those headphones. And if you're not in a very social mood when you wear those, people are less likely to talk to you. I agree. I agree. And I, I like the noise reduction headsets, but at a bare minimum, my biggest piece of advice for everybody is to bring your earplugs. They cost, you know, nine cents, 10 cents a, a pair. Huh. You know, your headsets could fail. You, you, you know, that's you good. That's, a poor, that's break. sort of a poor man's noise reduction phone. So those things are kind of expensive, but just simple yeah. earplugs would help also. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James Wysong. His book is called Flying High. James, I know a lot of people are nervous about flying when they hit turbulence and so on. And I had a pilot once tell me, Wearing his seatbelt, he could get bruises on his hips caused by the seatbelt before he would worry about turbulence being uh, a risk to the plane. Well, I've been in a lot of turbulence before, and and actually, I'm I'm so accustomed to it, I, I barely know notice it when it happens, except for the expressions on the passenger's face. Um, I think if you treat the turbulence like bumps in the road and yeah. don't try to fight them, you'll you'll have a lot better of a time with it. And you know, people say, well, aren't the wings going to, will they take all this turbulence? <laughs> I tell you, the turbulence that I've been through, yeah. the biggest the biggest uh, injury you'll have is not having your seatbelt on. In fact, I've heard of people not wearing their seatbelt get thrown up to the ceiling of the plane and hurt their head or their neck. I went on a plane once and I saw the indentation of lipstick marks on the ceiling. Wow. And you can just see what happens up there because they were coming in from Jamaica and you can hit the ceiling for sure. You know, all you got to do is run a video of that and people will wear their seatbelts. You want even to tell them, I think that's so powerful. I wear my seatbelts because there is that one in a thousand chance that you could hit a hole up there and everybody will be up on the ceiling if they're not wearing their seatbelt. Exactly. I fly with this lady that uh, she was out for two years because she hit the ceiling and she 
basically lectures us every time we fly with her. Okay, so there's a lot of things you kind of got to yawn and go, yeah, 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 this this uh, thing I'm sitting on is a life jacket. But those seat belts, that's a real concern. Yeah, and if you're a nervous flyer, make sure you tell a flight attendant as well because they right. can help you as well. You know, a lot of Americans don't realize that every day in our country alone, 30,000 airplanes take off and land safely. And two years went by before there was a single fatality in the airline, commercial airline industry in our country. It's an amazingly safe uh, way to get around, isn't it? Oh, it sure is. It sure is. And actually, when they say that the most dangerous part of your journey is on the drive to the airport, they, they really mean it. James, do you prefer Boeing over Airbus from a passenger point of view? Or Air, Airbus over Boeing? Oh, yeah. that's a tough question. There are some There are some that I prefer. I love the, the 777, um, but then again, I like the A320 over the 37. So it's okay. it's all specific. Are we ever going to see this giant Airbus? What's that one? The A380, I think yeah, it is. And yeah. I, I really hope not because apparently no American airline has it yet. And if they do, you know American airlines uh, in general are going to the seating capacity could be up to 600 to 800 passengers, and Crazy. that's too many. That's, that's just I, too many. I, From a flight attendant's point of view, that sounds like you've lost the whole thing. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with James Wysong, and James has written a fascinating book called Flying High, uh, sharing 20 years he's had being a flight attendant high in the sky. Our phone number, 877-333-7425 is the phone number. Radio at ricksteves.com. That's the email address as we ask a flight attendant for tips on making the flight a more pleasant part of our travels. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're talking with James Wysong, who shares 20 years of experience as a flight attendant in his new book called Flying High. James, when I get on an airplane, I'm very frustrated by how people just can't get on and sit down and then settle in. People have to stand in the aisle, and it takes seems like three times as long as necessary to get onto the airplane. Why can't they figure that out? Well, I think they're just waiting to get on the airplane to do all that stuff, which they could actually, before they board the airplane, the biggest thing is going to the restroom in the airport, because... Once they get on, they put their bags down and they head for the nearest restroom, which is probably backtracking. And I think uh, a lot of people aren't anticipating that, but go before you get on because there are better restrooms in the airport. <laughs> now, I've had people tell me they do all sorts of tricks on how to board quickly. And, uh, well, here's somebody. Jenny writes from San Diego, how do you win the boarding pass lottery? No matter what I do, I'm always on in zone 10, the very last to board. I don't want to give up an aisle seat, but uh, by the time I board, the overhead space is evaporated. Um, on the other hand, I personally always board last. I always fly coach. I always board last. And I'm so thankful to do that because then I can look around and see what seats are, are not taken. Uh, 90% of the time, I have an easy place to put my bag. And I, I've never really had a downside. Uh, what's your take on the advantages of boarding first or, or just hanging out in the gate until yeah, the very last person gets on? That all depends if it's a full flight or not. If it's not a full flight, you can actually see now there's monitors right outside of the boarding area showing you if it's a full flight or not. And I actually totally agree. That's one of my big tips. Be one of the last to board because then you, if you don't like the, the looks of your seat neighbor or there are two seats in a row, you sit down and you just pretend that that is your seat. Nobody's going to ask you for your boarding pass unless somebody comes for that seat. And then sure. you can play, play dumb and just kind of go, oh, wait, that's not <laughs> your seat. And just, just move on. But that's a great tip. And you don't have to stand in the breezeway there for so long either. I mean, I let the people who are at the gate 
I let them know I'm there, so they're not going to wonder where's this guy. And then I just hang out and relax in the in the warm, comfortable lobby. And then when the flight is all full, I just walk right on. And as you said, I can scan the area and see what seats are available. The The downside is if you have a hard roller board, you're going to have a tough time finding a place to park it upstairs. I suppose that's exactly. The but but you know what? You could gate check your bag. That actually is a guarantee your bag is going to get on the flight. So, you know, you might have to go to baggage claim. And that's a that's a pain. But also at the same time, it's kind of a so relief to now gate let checking go of your bag. is better than the other kind of checking from a guarantee of your bag getting through. Well, I'm not li- really not supposed to say this, but right. they don't charge you for gate checking. So, you know, uh, it's, it is better. You could save twenty five bucks. <laughs> hey. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> that's interesting. But I mean, more important than that, you know, that's going to get on. There's two kinds of checking at the gate. I mean, if you check at the gate, it can be tossed in with all the other bags that people checked in the conventional way, or it can be in that little cubby hole that is going to meet you on a little trolley outside of the on the tarmac when you get to the town. You know right. what I mean? Are we talking about it's going to end up in the baggage collection area, or is it going to be on a trolley when you get off the airplane? On a mainline carrier, if you're on a regional, then it's going to uh, greet you right when you get off the plane. But if you're on a mainline carrier, usually it's going to go to baggage claim when you get to baggage claim. So uh, do ask the flight attendant if it's going to be a baggage claim. Generally, it is. But I'm usually the last one on the plane because I fly space available as, a, as an employee. And my bag's always the last one to get on, and it's always the first one coming out on baggage claim. So I don't have to wait that long. Very good. So there's no risk by gate checking. And that's just they get it out of there because there's no room upstairs, and they're not going to charge you for it. Uh, don't quote James Wysong. That's by, <laughs> that's by A. Frank Stewart. James, who writes the book Flying High, has got like 300 pages of tips here. Barbara's on the phone in Colorado. Barbara, thanks for your call. Uh, you're welcome. You got a comment for James? Uh, yes, there's this great website that I found that's called SeatGuru.com. And when you go there, you pick the airline, and then it will tell you all about the different airplanes that that airline flies. And you can look at the seats, and it rates them for whether they're a good seat, a standard seat, a poor seat. And it'll give you information about, you know, whether the um, it's close to a lavatory or whether it's in the way of the gallery or, um, uh, you know, there's all sorts of good information about the airplane. So your flyers who are concerned about being at a bulkhead seat or need special things with their seat can look ahead of time if they know what kind of plane they're flying on and determine what kind of seat they're going to have. It's a really great resource. Boy, I've, for me, my pet peeve is getting a bulkhead seat where I can't stretch my feet out. I might have more room in some ways, but I, I need to stretch my feet out, and I'd rather be in a more crowded seat with a hole under the chair in front of me so I can stretch out. I totally agree. I'm actually six foot two, and I'm totally on board with you that. But some people really prefer the bulkhead if they have kids. I do remember when we had kids, we used the bulkhead, and they gave us a little crib that, that was hanging there in front of us. Or a little, uh, yep. like I, a hammock. I've got two kids of my own, so I, I, I go through that now as well. So, Barbara, when you go to that um, seatguru.com, what is your favorite seat? You know, I've gotten too old to fly back and coach, so I'd like to play the mileage game and buy an economy seat and then upgrade to business class uh-huh. with my miles. So I'd like to have one that's sort of in the middle where I can be sure I can recline. They're often the back seats at the end of the business class, won't recline all the way. Uh, I don't really like the bulkheads very much because I like to have my under-the-seat carry-on right there. I don't like to have to get up and get it down out of the right. overhead bin. 
an informed passenger is a, is a happier passenger. And as far as bag stowage, seat location, I think if you go to websites like that, I think if you're an informed, you're going to be happier. You know, and I had one other question, um, and it's about passengers with hearing loss. Any advice for those of us that are a little hard of hearing about how to communicate with the flight attendants on the airline? It depends on what degree of hearing loss you have, but make sure you carry a note describing your, your hearing loss and let somebody know. If a, a flight attendant uh, walks by, do tell them. Say, mm-hmm. listen, I'm hard of hearing and I need to help with this and this and this because a lot of times people get mad at us, but we can't help if we don't know. Hey, James, is it annoying to a flight attendant for somebody who uses their call button a lot or is that just a good tool? Well, you know, it depends. In, in first class, we expect it. In business class, it's kind of a 50-50. And in, in economy... It's mainly there for health reasons. If you're stuck by a window and there's two sleeping people next to you and you need a glass of water, or I think there's a happy medium in there. Right. But if you ring it for everything, right. yeah, you're going to get some grins. But that's a good point. If you've got people sleeping and you don't want to wake them up, use that call button and the flight attendant will come and, and help you not disturb those people and get you the drink you want. And just ring it once. You don't have to do it three, <laughs> four, five times ding, because ding, ding, that's, ding, ding, that's ding. when you get people going. <laughs> that's where you get your handcuffs out. Right. <laughs> Barbara, Barbara, thank you very much for your call. Uh-huh. Uh, very good tip I found in your book, uh, James, was if you're cold, don't sit by the emergency exits. Yes, and you could really freeze next to the emergency exits. And, you know, a lot of people during the summer, the summer, they're going to go to the airport and they're going to say, oh, I don't need a jacket. That's the wrong attitude. You really need a jacket, especially in the summer, because the airlines will freeze you out in the air. You've run from gate to gate. You get on the jetway. It's not air conditioned on the jetway. And then you get in the air. They turn on the air conditioning, and you freeze, and and it's just it's unbearable. Several times when I go to Europe for a whole month, the only time I need to wear my sweater is on the flight coming home. It can be very cold on those airplanes, and I know there's not a lot you can do about that, so people just need to be thoughtful about that. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James Weisong, and he's written a book called Flying High. Cheryl's on the line in Indianola, Washington. Hi, Cheryl. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. I just uh, came back from Miami We were a little bit late getting to the airport because of traffic, so we curb-checked our bag. There was a $15 charge. This airline charged $15 for us to check the bag. It was still uh, an hour before the flight took off, and we actually uh, tipped the uh, Skycap an extra $5 to make sure our bag would get taken care of, and we were appreciative that he, he also was able to give us our boarding passes. Well, we got from Miami back to Seattle, and our bag was not on the carousel. It didn't make it, and we were really frustrated. So they said they would uh, deliver it within 24 hours. So the next day, it wasn't delivered. I called, and they said, well, we gave it to FedEx. They picked it up this morning. It'll be there tomorrow in 24 hours. <laughs> so the next day, I waited till 4.30 in the afternoon, and it still wasn't there. I called FedEx then, and they said, oh, it went to Ohio. We, we misdirected it. And so we arrived on Monday night, and I got my bag on Thursday afternoon after I'd paid uh, basically $20 to have it checked and, and special handling. And so I'm wondering if there's higher risk in curb checking than there is in going inside and checking the bag. Well, as far as higher risk, I, I don't know. Unfortunately, I, I, I don't curb check, but I've had nothing but passengers very happy with the curb checking. But, 
you know, I, I guess there are isolated incidents, and I don't know as far as odds go if it's a higher risk. I, my experience is people find curb checking a godsend. I mean, uh, if you're going to have to check bags, uh, that's a, a beautiful thing. But I think you've got that slight chance either way of having your bags misdirected. You've just proven that uh, a tip does not necessarily mean your bags are <laughs> on board. No, no. I was, I was extremely frustrated. And then... FedEx is normally uh, really reliable, and they had the bag for three days. Fortunately, right. I have the good wow. news is that everything in my bag was still there, but I was really nervous for three or four days. That's maddening. We went to Puerto Rico one time, and the whole cabin did not get their bags, and they were all going on a cruise, and uh, I just can imagine the, the heartache that was suffered on that cruise. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that one good reason to try to pack light enough where you can carry on your bag? Well, I, I totally agree with you. I'm, I mean, I, I've been a fan of yours, Rick, for a while, and we've used your... Uh, <laughs> Sorry to be um, so annoying about that, but it's just, oh, it's frustrating no, otherwise, I, isn't it? Yeah. What's interesting is I was trying to uh, convince my partner as we went out to that trip that uh, we should only take carry-on and ship the things that we were bringing for his son. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's good thought, But there's a happy medium there. Happy medium, yeah. Thanks for your call, Cheryl. You're welcome, we have Mike on the line in Texas. Mike, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Great to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, my question is, when we're planning our trip to Europe, the budget for everything in the trip kind of takes precedence over the budget for the travel there. So we wind up relying in coach. I remember when flying was a great experience, and now it's just the ordeal we go through to get from here to there. What are your tips on getting comfortable in coach? In particular, last trip, I was up in front by the laboratory, and all night long I was getting awakened by people bumping up next to me. Hmm. Yeah, and that's when SeatGuru.com uh, comes in handy. You can choose your seats beforehand and kind of get uh, you know your A, B, C, D seats ahead of time. But one big piece of advice, I hate to say this, and it sounds like I'm a pessimist, but lower your expectations because so many people... They, they board with high expectations, and not very often does a flight go perfectly. So you got to expect the bumps in the road, so to speak. You know, the one thing I would not be flexible about, or I would not be a good sport about, is having to sit next to the bathroom and having people come in and go on and lining up right there. If I was in the aisle next to the bathroom, I, for me, that'd be, the I think, the worst seat in the plane. Probably it's the one that doesn't recline also. Um, as I, I guess that's something to try to avoid, Mike. But I, I'm with James. I look out the window and, and I imagine, uh, I would I think I'm going to Europe 600 miles an hour or something and imagine going to Europe on a bus or something like that. I don't care what the food tastes like. I don't care how crowded the seat is. I'm so thankful I'm going to Europe in eight hours. But like James said, I've got low expectations. I put my noise reduction headphones on. I bury myself in some work and I bundle up. I try to get comfortable. I take my belt off. A lot of people like to bring slippers. That's a good thing. And uh, just kind of realize it's going to be claustrophobic and an eight-hour bit of an ordeal. But when you get there, you got there. And these days, you fly to Europe cheaper than you did 10 years ago, I think. Yep. It's at all-time low. That's right. Good luck, Mike, in your travels. Right. Great. Thanks. Bye. We got Anne on the phone in Atlanta. Anne, thanks for your call. Well, great to be with you all today. Uh, I was wondering what your favorite and most the funniest experience that you've ever had as a flight attendant. I'm sure you have a whole collection. I haven't read your book yet, but I would be interested in hearing some of the, the most humorous, wildest things that have happened to you. Well, I tell you, I have another book out called The Plain Truth, and that's about all the funny experiences I've experienced oh. on the flights. 
But uh, that's by A. Frank Stewart, my pen name. But uh, <laughs> I'll tell you the funniest. A. Frank Stewart. For a, a minute. A. Frank Stewart. That's I, right. I didn't yeah. even get that at first. I saw A. Frank Stewart and I thought, what a funny name for a writer. But that's your <laughs> pen name. This is James Weissong. Yes. Okay, so the other book, James, is called? The Plain Truth. The Plain Truth. Okay, there you go, Anne. What's, what's one of, just pull one of those anecdotes out, James. Well, there was one time this flight attendant, um, it was an early morning service, and she went to go reach for the orange juice, and, and her ring caught on uh, a man's toupee. And uh, it pu- pulled it off, and she didn't know what it was because it was early in the morning. So she looks at her hand, she sees a squirrel or something, an animal on her on her hand, and starts screaming at the top of her lungs. She could not <laughs> stop screaming, and she could not get this animal off her. So the whole cabin wakes up, and she's running down the aisle, beating it on the on the seats and on the ground, and she disappears into the restroom. Meanwhile, we look back at the, the gentleman, and he looks like a convertible in a rainstorm, and he just kind of looks at everybody and kind of goes, oh, okay. So he gets up he puts his hat on and everybody starts clapping and at the end of this uh, she comes out of the bathroom she realized what happened and she gives him a sick bag with his uh with his toupee in it and she oh, she fun. apologized and she gave him a bottle of champagne and her nickname from then is uh, little running hair <laughs> she had a in, in-flight scalping that's that's great well i tell you you all deserve great accolades because i think so many people take flight attendants and other airline personnel for granted and you all have to tolerate so much and put up with all these weird, moody passengers that I get stuck <laughs> sitting next to, and I think you all do a, a great job. Plus, we we oftentimes, until recently, forget your prime uh, goal, which is to ensure the safety of, of, of passengers. So keep up the good work, keep on flying, and, and, and thanks for sharing some of your great inside tips. Well, thank you very much. Anne in Atlanta, thanks for your call. Thank you. Hey, do cell phones work up in the sky? If I wanted to turn mine on, could I actually make a call? No. They don't. They don't work up in the sky, but I tell you what, people, they, they say, oh, put it in travel mode or flight mode. Uh, nobody does. And I, I don't think operating uh, those things are going to affect the dials in the cockpit at all, but uh, apparently still they, they've got the regulations around it. But didn't the plane on 9-11 that, that crashed in Pennsylvania, didn't people on that plane call their loved ones from their cell phones? Yes, but that was because they were at a lower altitude. Oh, okay. And then, so just in general, when they say, why no electrical stuff on takeoff and landing... Um, tour buses in Europe have little computers that monitor how fast they're going in the steering wheel for the police to check and see how fast they're going. And I've, I've turned on something, my phone in the back of the bus, and it has caused that a problem. Is that still a concern that if 50 people are running their laptops and their little Game Boys or whatever, it's going to affect the gear up in the cockpit? No, I, I wouldn't say uh, categorically no, but I would say no. And I think the biggest reason we ask you to turn off your electronic devices is because at that time, you should be more aware of security and safety um, in case something happens. So when we're doing our mm. safety demo and people are talking on their phone or they're uh, tapping on their yeah. laptop, you know they're not listening to us. Well, you At least they're. fake it. <laughs> you know they're not listening to you anyways <laughs> when you tell me how to buckle up my seatbelt. Hey, but that's, that's very interesting. So if I do forget, if occasionally I've landed and I forgot to turn something off, I didn't cause a risk to the pilot. I just... Exactly. Okay, that's nice. And a lot of people will, will get up while we're taxiing or taking off and, and go to their bags and you go, what are you doing? Uh, yeah, and they say, oh, I'm turning my cell phone. No, no. The biggest risk you're doing right now is you're up. And if you fall down, you're going to fall on somebody or you're gonna, your bag is going to come flying out of the bin. So if you forget to turn it off, just leave it, okay. leave it alone. Good to know. Hey, we have an email from Mike in Columbus, Ohio. And, and Mike writes, I fly a lot and almost always in coach. The key is to make sure you look at the trip as a relaxing adventure, not a competition or a race. 
be flexible, show up early, and have the attitude to enjoy and accept positively whatever happens. Imagine if everybody had that attitude. I want him on my airline. I agree. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a total adventure. And if you carry on your, your sense of humor, life is a lot easier. Words of wisdom spoken by a man who for 20 years has helped all of us fly. James Weisung, author of Flying High, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Next, we'll meet a couple of comedy writers who raced around the world with one rule, no airplanes. They took off one east and one west. The first one back to L.A. got the prize, a bottle of fine scotch. The story of what they call their ridiculous race is up next on Travel with Rick Steves. My name is Elisabeth Van Est, and I'm from the Netherlands, and I'm going to mention one of our tongue twisters. It says, Mother snijdt zeven brood. That means, Mother cuts seven crooked slices of bread. Mother snijdt zeven brood. That's so good. I'm sure it's happened to you. You get together, have a few drinks, start throwing around ridiculous ideas, and somebody in the group says, I know, let's race around the world in opposite directions, not using airplanes, and see who can get home first. Ridiculous idea? Maybe. In fact, two guys did it. They had an incredible experience. They wrote a book called The Ridiculous Race, and they join us now to tell their story. Steve Healy and Vali Chandrasekharan. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Thank you. And fantastic job with that tough name. You guys both were students at Harvard, both writing for yes. the Harvard mm-hmm. Lampoon, and uh, today right, yeah. still working on uh, comedy writing in Los Angeles. Yes, we sure. can't quit. Using that computer science degree. To, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> like day. a lot of people, I think. <laughs> so you just had like a, a dare, uh, a personal bet, and you yeah. you took off 26,000 miles. The idea of who would come around the world without using airplanes and who would get home first. What was the prize for the person who got back first? Uh, the prize was a bottle of Kinclaith Scotch from 1969. We got a publishing company to fund <laughs> this enterprise. And so we went out and we tried to find the most expensive bottle of scotch we could find in Los Angeles. And we found this great bottle from 1969. And we poured two glasses of it. And the first guy to go all the way around the world and get back and drink his glass would be the winner. Wow. It turns out the, the best bottle you can buy in Los Angeles, a city where you know fools just come into money suddenly all the time is way more expensive than we expected (laughs) growing up in small towns you actually proposed this to your publisher and they gave you the money to do the trip to go around the world assuming you'd write the book is that the deal yes we've been talking about the idea for a while about the idea of like can you go around the world without using airplanes and then we should go around the world without using airplanes and then we should race around the world without using airplanes and there'd be fools if we didn't do this (laughs) but then of course we were like well we don't want to pay for that so we went out and 
pitched the idea as a book and the good folks at Henry Holt Publishing Company were kind enough to, to fund it and we told them we'd turn in a book. Uh, who was the winner? Which one have you got and how long did it take you? Well, I I consider myself the winner. I actually did the project. Vali, uh, he can explain himself, but I, I went all the way around the world without using airplanes in 57 days. In 57 days. Wow. Yes, I left Los Angeles going west and arrived back coming west, and it took 57 days. Now, your good friend, your buddy all the way from college, cheated yeah. on you, and he took many airplanes to go around the world in the opposite direction. Vali, well, that's, right. that's, that's correct. Good. Absolutely. How can you um, justify that? This was my idea from the start, because when Steve and I were originally talking about this idea about racing around the world without airplanes, I initially said no, because I thought the only way to do this, you have to spend two weeks crossing the Pacific by a boat. And then you have to take a train as fast as you can across China and Eastern Europe all the way to London, and then another week on a boat. And I thought I would go out of my mind and not experience anything. So I kept saying no, no. And then I wondered, like, wouldn't it be funny if I cheated and Steve never knew? And I just went to whatever place I thought was interesting at the time and saw, like, different parts of the world and actually slowed it down. And then uh. at the end, got to compare my experiences with Steve. And I, <laughs> and I was thinking about the race in a different way, not just who made it back to Los Angeles first, but who had the best experience at the expense of the Henry Holt Publishing Company. And uh, I decided that's what I was going to do. Rather than sitting on a boat for 12 days thinking, boy, this is boring, you could justify in your mind flying and enjoying 12 days of real travel experience in some great exotic spot and reporting on it. Is that the idea? That was the idea. And also... As I was starting to do research about how to get quickly around the world, the paths are basically the same in both directions, and I kind of wanted to go to different places than Steve, so we could, okay. we could swap stories. Now, Steve, you actually did sit on a boat to cross the Pacific then, is that right? I did, yeah. I thought it was a great experience. I left uh, Long Beach on a boat, a German-owned, Filipino-crewed cargo ship that was going from Long Beach Harbor, the big harbor in L.A., to Shanghai, and it took 14 days. We had a couple stops in, hmm. in Oakland and then again in Korea. And we went through the Aleutian Islands off Alaska, and I thought it was a great experience. I think Bali cheated himself. I, I, yeah. I will say that we we had some satellite phones to communicate with each other during this time, and Steve was basically on the verge of tears every time I talked to him. Well, I... <laughs> Bali, would you say tears of boredom when Steve was in the middle of it? Yeah, I would I would describe it as tears of boredom, but he it was like a situation where it seemed like he had been by himself and was so cold and so bored for so long. It was like someone, <laughs> someone is about to freeze to death, and you see them just sort of smiling. It's so you, true. It's an interesting mental state you go through when you've been in the Pacific for a couple of days. Yeah, for all I know, he achieved nirvana during this part of the journey. So you had cell phones, and you could sort of prank each other a little bit when you'd call in. Yeah, we ha we had these satellite phones. They had to be exposed to the sky. That was the one trick of how to work them. So. If you were ever indoors, you couldn't work them. But they probably were great in the Middle Pacific. Yeah, it was it was very handy. I called my mom. I, says, I read in your book that if you wanted to, it would have been legal for you to go right up to like ten feet short of the North Pole and just walk around a little circle because all you had to do was. Sure. Yeah, what's the adventure in that? But but <laughs> but even if you did that, it probably would be because you couldn't fly. It would even be tougher. But the point was, you had to cross every longitude yeah, line. Yeah. I think subsequently Steve and I have both looked into this, and that's not impossible to do. I think you can, you can get down to the tip of South America and then take a boat down to the South Pole and, oh, okay. and, and make that happen. So having done this experience, and if you just want to really get down serious and just like break the record and really not fly... How long do you think it would take if everything went well to circle the world? If you if you started, I'm pretty sure uh, I'm pretty sure you could do it in about 42 days. You if you timed everything out, you got on a ship 
and went across the Pacific as fast as possible, got on a train, took no stops. All the way and, to uh, Moscow. Again, this is 42 days planned in advance. You would have to yeah. time everything out. Right. You'd so have to time it out. end of one leg. There are some gaps, you know, that <laughs> slowed me down. But if you're really going full hard and you mapped it all out, I think you wow. could do it in about 42 days. And how much preparation did you guys do before With you left With just public home? transportation, true, right? Right. That's right, public. yeah. Like if you had your own... We've cut Jules Verne in half. Hey, we've got some uh, people on the line here. Tim's calling from Apex, North Carolina. Tim, you want to talk to Steve and Vali about their experience? Uh, yeah, hi, guys. Um, I think hi, Tim. Hey, Tim, how are, how are you doing? Good, thanks. I think you already answered my question, but I was wondering which one of you had the advantage of going against the Earth's rotation. Um, well, I was going west, so I was gaining an hour of sleep every night while Vali was <laughs> shortening his days. So I think I definitely had the advantage it basically worked out that I think I lost an hour every other night, which when I at the beginning I was I was driving like fourteen hours a day and the first night I realized this was gonna happen, I almost broke down in tears. I was just so <laughs> exhausted and knowing knew I had to wake up in about six hours to continue driving. Did that not occur to you until you got into it? Oh, I, I thought I thought about it. I definitely knew I was getting the advantage on volley. Wow. And somewhere in the middle of the Pacific I remember on this sailing ship and a cargo ship and a German officer just knocked on my door and said, just so you know, today's Tuesday, tomorrow's going to be Thursday. And I said, okay, and we're crossing <laughs> the international dateline. I chose to go east for a separate reason, which is the first thing I wanted to do was visit a crazy engineer in Mexico City who was designing and selling jetpacks, which I was hoping would aid me in my traveling. <laughs> and uh, I, I thought that going east when I agreed to go west at the very start of the race wasn't really the right thing to do. I, I had placed a lot of perhaps misguided faith in this jetpack working out to my advantage. So, Tim, in North Carolina, was that your concern when you asked about who had the advantage of going against the Earth rotation, just who would gain hours or lose hours? Well, I thought about that afterwards. My my original idea was just as a joke, going against the rotation, kind of saving you some time. Oh, <laughs> these guys are not that scientific. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know if that would really work because we, we had to cross every degree of longitude, so we would be rotating with the Earth. That's true. I yeah. think you guys are doing a lot of different kinds of rotating that had nothing to do with the world spinning. <laughs> Tim, I thanks. I suppose a guy going against the rotation could just do a lot of jumping and then perhaps eventually make it. Oh, man, I just get in a bad mood losing an hour's sleep every two nights. Hey, uh, yeah. Tim, thanks for your call. All right, thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the ridiculous race. Uh, two guys, former writers uh, at the Harvard Lampoon, the, the comedy magazine from Harvard, now are comedy writers in Los Angeles, Steve Healy and Valley Chandrakas... Valley, give me your last name again. Chandrasekharan. There you go. The book is a delight to read, and we're talking about their ridiculous race. Paul's on the phone from Toronto. Paul, thanks for your call. Uh, can I ask you guys, what you thought was the worst bathroom that you folks had seen? Uh, maybe you first, Steve. Oh, well, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I took the Trans-Siberian Railroad, which uh, took me for about seven days across Russia, and the bathrooms there on the on the train are just a, there's a bathroom stall, and you go in, and it's just a hole, which sort of opens out onto the train tracks, and, hmm. you know, you do whatever you need to do, and then you flip a button and the, the bottom of the train opens up and you can see the tracks racing by. And because of this, you're not allowed to go to the bathroom within 30 minutes of the train station for, for good civic ordinance uh, to keep things clean. So I'd say that that certainly was the most basic bathroom. I would say the worst bathroom I had to deal with was in Cambodia. and It wasn't a moving one, but it was just Imagine the worst gas station bathroom you've ever seen in the United States. and then In, in, in my mind, I'm thinking train spotting. 
<laughs> yeah. I would have I would have paid money for a train spotting guy in that situation. <laughs> I, I I think. I uh you, you draw on reserves of willpower uh that you didn't know you have in situations like that. <laughs> All right, Paul. Well um I think when you went around the world you'd find a lot of uh memories and many of them would be the toilets you encountered along the way, I think. <laughs> yep. Usually get the most interesting. Really the only thing I remember. All right. Thanks, Paul. And uh, Joyce in Warminster, Pennsylvania, emails us. And uh, Joyce read your book, and she loves uh, The Ridiculous Race. And she asks, did either of you at any time feel any sense of danger? Where were you the most uncomfortable that way? Val, you want to start off? It's weird. During the race itself, I was always worried that I might be in dangerous situations. And then now that it's done, I look back and think, ah, everything, everything was probably not so bad. But uh, during the race, the moment I I felt the most uneasy is when I was in Brazil and I had gone out for the night trying to meet some people and it wasn't going so well. And I just stuck my head into this dive bar on my way back to where I was staying. And it seemed interesting enough. And like there were locals that were, were talkative. And I bought a drink, and I quickly learned that I was hanging out with this Brazilian graffiti gang who were telling me that they were the most dangerous gang in Rio. And (laughs) it turns out they were joking, but I was not able to pick up jokes in Portuguese very well at this time. (laughs) And I ended up having a fantastic night hanging out with these guys, drinking until very late in the night, and then going to hang out with them the next day. But there was a good 10 minutes there where I thought... If these guys actually are dangerous, I don't want to just run away because I feel like they'll just chase me down and kill me. And they were actually tagging? They weren't tagging it. They had come back from tagging, and okay. they were just hanging out at the at this bar where they were Post-tagging drinking. recuperation. Yeah. <laughs> and I was going to go out tagging with them the following day, but there was a horrible downpour, and we ended up just <laughs> sitting in sort of the place where they hang out and, like, planning the tags that they were going to do <laughs> Tags of the future. They showed me photos of uh, tags they had done in graffiti they had completed, and then they, there was a wall that they would practice stuff on in there, which was very fun to see just the doodles that go up that like are in part of the process of coming up with graffiti which <laughs> you often think is just doodling on a wall. You know, I, I imagine you guys just enjoyed meeting people across the way and found yourself in some interesting spots. One of you wrote about a crazy party on a ferry in Sweden. Yeah, I took a ferry uh, from Finland to Sweden and the, 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 this is like a sort of, it goes overnight. So you leave at you know 5 p.m. in Finland and you arrive in Stockholm the next morning. And it's famously, this is what Scandinavian people do for fun. And Scandinavian people, fun is pretty scarce uh, in, in Finland and, and Sweden. So when they get an opportunity, they really go all out. And this was in <laughs> May and, and they make the most of the summer warmth up there. So it was it was an absolutely out of control ferry ride for just 12 hours. Don't they take the ferries for the, the cheap booze because it's duty free on international waters? Yeah, yeah. And then they get out of the tax right. zone and they just I mean, go crazy. It's so cheap. to. I mean, budget travelers go back and forth just sleeping on the ferry every night just because it's like no profit for the ride. They intend to make a lot of money having people buy all the alcohol on the ferries. Yeah. By the time I got to Finland, I, or to Sweden, rather, I felt I felt like I'd paid a, a pretty hefty price, if not in tax, <laughs> then in uh, physical health. Once again, great times and and good tax laws go hand in hand. <laughs> <laughs> tax subsidized fun in Sweden, but then when you got to Sweden, you commented on this slum you went to, like uh, incredible. You think yeah, of Sweden well, you know, is I, so rich, but a, a, a slum in Stockholm. Well, I had some great hosts in Sweden, these guys I'd met who were television hosts in Sweden named Philip and Frederick, who host a very popular television show in Sweden, and I'd met them, and they're Stockholm men about town, and I was asking them, like, I, I was walking around Stockholm, and it was such a beautiful town, such a great paradise, that I said, okay, guys, you've got to tell me the worst slum in all of Stockholm, and they're like, okay, you've got to go out to this place called Rinkeby, it's, it's just terrible, you won't believe how bad it is. 
And I went out there and it was just beautiful. There were just well-maintained public parks and the houses were nice. And it's a lot of um, Kurdish and Ethiopian immigrants who have arrived in Sweden, but they're just having a great time riding their bikes around and picnicking. And I had some great Kurdish food at a little bar. And you know, that's you guys actually... have no idea what a slum is. That's actually a very good tip. I could write that up in my guidebook. It's just the slum of Stockholm. And it's a, yeah, a, a tidy... I, I, it's called Rinkeby. I recommend going Rinkeby. It's, it's just a tidy immigrant community, basically. Yeah. I, with interesting food, unlike the rest of yeah, the country. Yeah, very good food. And these guys claim that at <laughs> night it, it's dangerous, but I, I would say that it, it was much safer than any place I've ever been. Uh, a Swedish slum. Hey, we got Sarah on the line in Kansas City. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for your call. Got a question for Steve Rivali? Yeah, I was wondering, um, on the one of you that actually went around the world, did you yes. did you write on any did you write on any animals like elephants or camels or donkeys? I did. I rode on a horse in Mongolia. I, I stopped in Mongolia, and the population of Mongolia is about forty percent nomads. So I said to myself, oh. I've got to see this. So I got off the train and I went out and spent some time with a nomad family in Mongolia, and they taught me how to ride a horse, which I'd never done before, um, a little like Mongolian pony, and we went riding across the steps, which was great fun for me, you know, to experience this thrill of, of being like one of Genghis Khan's horsemen, although I was in terrible danger of getting paralyzed because I don't know anything about riding a horse. Mm. But I don't think I, I didn't make any progress using an animal. No, I'd say you're exactly like one of okay. Genghis Khan's horsemen. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty much the equivalent of Genghis Khan. No, it was yeah. great. Just uh, I was with a Mongolian guide, who, and he couldn't speak English, and I couldn't speak Mongolian, and he was trying to tell me how to ride this horse in, in Mongolian, and I had no idea what he was saying to me, and we <laughs> just went off across the step. Did you guys both take the Trans-Siberian Railway? I did. Vali, I think, flew over most of Oh, Vali. No, I, I went <laughs> down south, so I did. Uh, you would have gone south, okay. I went down to Cairo. I went to, well, Vali, you have family in India, so you have a reason to drop by India, I suppose. Uh, but I didn't go there. What I ended up doing is I went, we met up in Moscow for one night, and then I went to Cairo, and then to Amman, Jordan, and then into Palestine, and then Dubai before going to uh, Cambodia and Shanghai. Now, you saw a lot of Islam. Uh, to me, Dubai is different than your standard Islam because it's such a huge shopping and immigrant labor kind of center and uh, shipping center and everything. What, is, what was your take on Dubai compared to the rest of Islam? Is it an anomaly or is it a fair look? Uh, I really loved Dubai a lot. I was only there for about 30 hours, and I spent some time in Dubai itself, and then I went to the outer parts of the the state as well, just where the sand dudes are, and like hung out with a few em Emiratis uh, doing like sandboarding and things like that. And it's certainly very different from everywhere else I was in the Middle East. Like Sandboarding? Um, you know, Is that like skiing on sand? It was literally strapping a snowboard to my feet and then boarding down a sand dune. Wow. Which sounds fun in theory until you have to walk <laughs> back to the top of the sand dune because there's not a lot of sand dune lifts out there. Well, they need a the sand dune the lift. They need a chairlift in the desert. <laughs> or just some sort of helicopter that'll get you back up. I can imagine with, with both of your joy of, of comedy and meeting people and doing crazy things and the whole world of opportunities to choose from, this must have been the experience of a lifetime. It took you about two months. You wrote a book about it, The Ridiculous Race. It's been so much fun talking to you guys. Stephen Volley, thanks for sharing your adventure with us. Thanks very much. Thank you. Well, the sun gets bloody and the sun goes down Ever since the watermelon And the lights come up on the black pit town Somebody's there, but you better think you do Well, it's not just me and it's not just you This is all around the world the former talk show host far and wide his name was known 
Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. That's where we include links to our guests and archives of past editions of the program. We get production and technical help from Sarah McCormick, Pat O'Connor, Andrew Wakeling, Robin Cronin, and Jonathan Lee. Special thanks for studio help to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York City and at KCRW in Santa Monica. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm the show's producer, Tim Tatton. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. On Rick's website, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To prepare for your next European experience, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.